please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, our sermon text this evening is verses 1 through 4. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray again. Our Father, we ask that you would give us understanding in your word. We ask that you would be with the words of my mouth, that I would be able to speak truth consistent with what you have revealed. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. It was in the 1960s that the phrase, the generation gap, rose in popularity, and it has had some uh, measure of currency ever since then. And yet, as we think of that phrase, generation gap, we recognize that it refers to something much older than something that began in the 1960s. Whatever it was called by, there has always been a conflict between parents and children since the fall. And there has been a gap or chasm that divides children from their parents and parents from their children, in which perhaps the children view the world one way and the parents view the world a different way, and they, they're not able to reconcile their differences. And so then it becomes a source of hostility and friction, and parents are turned against their own children, and children are turned against their own parents. This is a problem that goes much further back than just the 1960s. The Apostle Paul, writing in the first chapter of Romans, uh, describes uh, those who are uh, rejecting the revelation of God and describes what kind of people they are and says that they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and And as Paul, through those, uh, the godless around him, through the ways that he characterizes them, those as being disobedient. generation gap. Must there always be a conflict between parents and their children and children and their parents? The answer is no. The good news is that in Jesus Christ, this conflict between the generations can be sealed. In Jesus Christ, the conflict between the generations can be sealed. We recognize that on one level, Jesus Christ not come to bring peace but a sword, that one's enemies would be the members of one's own household, that fathers and sons would be turned against each other if it meant that uh, some had to follow Christ and others refused to do so, that Christ's claims or the loyalty 
a more deep than even the natural familial bonds. And yet, as we are in Ephesians, we are studying the Christian household. Household where the whole, uh, a, a household where everyone comes along to follow Christ. We find that there is a healing. There is a love that is expressed. And so we will be looking at how it is that we are called to pursue this, this healing and this peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at it under the, the two groups that Paul exhorts. First, to the children, and then secondly, to the parents, and specifically, the fathers. As we think about the healing that Christ brings to the conflict between generations, children, first, consider what your duty is. There are two commands. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And the second command, verse 2, honor your father and mother. As children, you have a duty prescribed by God that you should honor and obey your parents. That you should render to them uh, an obedience that is not only outward, but also inward. the instructions that they give to you and that you should do it with a joyful heart ready to submit with humility it's not merely an outward uh, doing what my parents tell me until I'm 18 years old and then I can get out of the house and, and uh, do whatever I want but, but an honoring of your parents holding them in high esteem and even when, when you get into those situations where it seems like your, your parents are, are holding over you a, a requirement that is difficult for you. Learn patiently with your parents in all of their weaknesses. Your parents are sinners and they need God's grace just as you do. And, and they have an authority that has been given to them by God. Instead of being following as a disciple of Christ, learn to honor them. Are they going to be perfect? No. Are they weak? we of flesh? Yes. And yet God calls you to honor and to respect them and to render an obedience to them. Paul says that the reason the children ought to do this is because it is right. Verse 1. It's right because God has commanded it. But it's also right because this is the way God has made the world to work. It is right because this is the way he has made uh, children to come into this world is from their parents. That by reason of the way that you come into this world as children of parents, you therefore owe them an obedience and an honor. And as we think about this, uh, we can consider that God has given each and every one of us in this room a reminder of the, the debt that we owe to our parents and especially to our mothers. That right in the middle of our abdomen, there is a scar that's never going to heal that reminds us that for nine months, our mothers carried us around in their belly nourishing us with their very own bodies. 
that when you were a baby in the womb, that all of your, your material substance had come to you by way of your mother's angel. And then after you were born, your mother continued to nurse you and to continue to give from her own body to you, to build you up. There's, there's an honor that is right that you should give to your parents. But notice that that's not the only reason that Paul says that children ought to obey their parents. Paul gives a, a further reason in verse 3. Quoting the fifth commandment, he says that it may go, uh, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. See, God is a gracious and generous God. He could require of you to obey your parents because it's right, and that's it, full stop. But he's a loving and generous father through Jesus Christ, his son, and he delights in giving gifts. And so he attaches a free promise, a promise of blessing that he didn't have to attach to it, but in his goodness, he freely adds to the commandment a reward, a blessing that will follow upon such obedience. That it may go well with you. That you might have well-being in this life. And that you might live long upon the earth. God is kind and generous to attach such a blessing to this commandment. This ought to incentivize children to honor their parents. If you recognize that this is ordinarily the path that God has appointed to well-being and to a long life, honoring one's parents. And yet we can also raise the question, well, what about those children who seem to honor their parents, but who died young? Does the promise of God come to nothing? What about those children who, right in their infancy, relate particularly rebellious? Or those older adult children, did they have some secret sin for which God cut them down? The answer is no, not necessarily. Rather, we recognize that godliness is a profit not only for this life, but also for the life to come. And that this promise of a long life upon the earth does have a general fulfillment in this life, which usually God will bring to fruition. But even in those instances where, according to his wise counsel, he chooses not to, there is yet an inheritance of the earth in the age to come, which he gives to the meek through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus pronounces the blessing that the meek will inherit the earth. for all those who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, who have been renewed by him, and who then uh, live according to his spirit, express hardly then an honoring to one's parents, a meekness. There is this promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's a promise that comes to us not because we worked hard enough and we obeyed our parents well enough, but rather because Jesus Christ 
is that one who has perfectly honored his father and who has become the heir of all things, the one to whom uh, all the furthest reaches of the earth have been given as his possession. Jesus owns all of the earth and he freely shares it with his people who belong to him. So self honor returns. But this call is not just for young children, it's also for adult children as well. That you have a duty to honor your aged parents. Apostle Paul warns, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There's a Reformation, uh, or there's a report from the Reformation era, in which, at least in one part of Europe, it was a common saying that a father would provide more love and care to ten sons than ten sons would to one father. own growth and infancy. This is something that is so important, in fact, that Paul says if someone fails to do it, it is tantamount to denying the faith. So there is a call to parents. <coughs> There's also a call to parents, and especially to fathers, verse 4. There is a negative command and a positive command. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, negative, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So now as we turn to look at how fathers are, are seeking to reform their relationship with their children in light of the work of Christ, we consider first that negative command, don't provoke your children to anger. Well, before I go any further, let me say that as a parent who has a child who is less than one year old, I'm well aware that new parents can sometimes be expert theoreticians who are slowly humbled over the course of their life until they confess that they know nothing or almost nothing about child rearing. And so I, I tread with great caution as we enter this portion of the text. Uh, and yet, as long as we stay close to the text, we do have God's word to guide us. And so notice that there is there is a kind of, of discipline, there is a kind of upbringing that can provoke children to wrath. There is a kind of, of nurture in which uh, our children are, are brought to a, a lifelong bitterness and an resentment against their parents and perhaps against the church, and perhaps against Jesus Christ. The call is not to raise your children in that way. So how might you think about avoiding such, uh, such a kind of, of child raising? <coughs> you might characterize it as, as this, a discipline without wrath. 
there's an over-severity in which the correction is disproportionate to the offense committed. So you have a, a three-year-old child who commits some error, some fault, and the parent uh, explodes and treats it, the child like it's 17 years old and ought to know better and is a hardened, uh, hardened uh, rebellious child, always was, not recognizing that the child is still at her tender age, still fallible, still able to be shaped, still not having all of the cognitive processes that the child would have when they are older. There is an over-severity in terms of the response to the, the type of offense. Sometimes it's not even an offense that has been committed. Sometimes it is simply the child has uh, something that they need help with. Dad, can you help me with my homework? And all of a sudden, Dad is in a fuss and a rage as the child is not able to, uh, to adequately do homework on his own, all because it interrupts the leisure of the evening. And, and in some ways, sin necessarily on the part of the child. The, the child is earnestly endeavoring to be a good student and, and do his homework, and yet there's, there's a, a, an outburst of anger there. Another kind of uh, over-severity, the child is older and advanced in wisdom, and yet the parents uh, continue to impose heavy restraints on the child, not suggesting that we needlessly or carelessly expose our children to temptation, and that as parents we seek to protect them from that. But we should also recognize that the goal of child raising is not to show the helicopter parents that we protect our children, but they never have to exercise their will for good or evil for fear that they're going to choose the evil. Rather, our goal is that our children be able to delight in the good themselves and will the good from the heart. And part of that is going to require some liberty and room for the child be able to make those decisions not under compulsion. Think of how the Apostle Paul writes to Philemon, and he says, I have boldness to, to command you what to do. But for love's sake, I'm going to appeal to you. Right? I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to keep Onesimus here against your will, because I want you to offer an obedience that comes from the heart, that's freely offered. can be a fearful thing. What if our children make the wrong choice? Right? What if given such liberty they choose and they choose badly? Yet we entrust them to the care of the Lord and we recognize that there is something far more powerful than even a, a parent's restraints that they might place on their own children. And what is more powerful than that is the indwelling Holy Spirit in their lives who makes them hunger and thirst for righteousness, who craves with their inner being to please their Heavenly Father, the children who are presenting their bodies as slaves to righteousness, the children who will from the heart please the Lord provides a, a much stronger and better 
course of, of righteousness than an external imposed and compelled obedience from without. Recognizing, of course, that it's contextual. It depends on the age and the maturity of the child. I'm not saying let your five-year-old make all sorts of decisions which they're not capable of doing. There is that sheltering and there's that protecting that we say. But also discipling them towards the point where they will for themselves bear what is right. We, we heard this this morning as baptismal vows, which are in our book of church order, were, were taken, that, that parents seek to uh, encourage their children to appropriate for themselves the benefits, the blessings of the covenant, and also the, the obligation that it's, it's at some point that the children are going to take upon themselves the obligations of the covenant. The will for, for themselves will from the heart to lock up uh, a parent's love behind over-severity. Lock it up behind the gate. The love expressed only when the child has met all sorts of conditions. Or there is uh, another way to, to provoke children to wrath. Withholding love. Not because it's locked behind the gate, the gate is unlocked, but it's simply that the affections are out on some other errand. Attending to some thing that's more important. Further, there is the caution of over-frequent correction, a hyper-vigilant correction of every single error and sin that the child commits and always exacting a discipline to the fullest, an unwillingness to overlook any fault. sinful thought. God has chastised you, sent you a spreading headache for the next hour. What if every time you spoke in an irritated tone, God were to send you an illness that would put you in bed for the rest of the week to humble you? What if every time you covetously thought to yourself, I wish I made more money so that I could buy that lip lock that I saw on TV, and that evening, God were to send a burglar into your home to steal some of your other possessions to show you how ungrateful you had been for the things you had already given him. Is that the kind of father that we have? Is that the way that God deals with us? As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. He knows our weaknesses, he knows that we are, are creatures of the dust. And so we have compassion for him. The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And I won't 
translation, she does not afflict Job. So to speak, her heart is not in it. revelation of the character of God comes to us in the middle of the book of Lamentations as as Jerusalem has has been sent into exile and there's unspeakable destruction and sadness and tragedy that they have experienced. There's this reminder that as the Lord disciplines, he does not discipline or he does not uh, afflict from the heart. children to wrath, but to be where discipline aims not at uh, uh, be where the discipline not aimed at producing godliness in the child, but rather at the parent's own immediate comfort. So often it can be easy to discipline a child simply because that's the quickest thing that's going to let me get back to what I was doing before. But to call for parents to discipline their children in such a way that they are brought up instruction and teaching of Christ. And that takes time and effort. Does the child understand what it is that he or she has done wrong? Or is the discipline just coming out of the blue for no reason that the child can understand? Does the child understand why what he or she has done is wrong? Has he been shown the harm that will result to himself or others? Has he been taken to God's word and shown why it's displeasing to God? And does the discipline end with an act of reconciliation in which the parent assures the child of an unconditional love for the child, just as God has shown us a free, bountiful love in his Son, Jesus Christ? Instead, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition or the discipline and instruction of the Lord. As we consider this positive command to parents, we should note that there's a a, a fathers who are are particularly endeared. That that parents have a a particular responsibility and especially fathers. As we're going through the, the household portion of the book of Ephesians, we notice that there's there's one person in the household that Paul is going to keep coming back to under different aspects. Uh, wife, husband, children, father, slave, master. Well, there's one person who's going to be in each and every one of those groupings. The head of the household. He's going to be the husband, the father, the master. And so the head of the household is, is really in, in the scope here. Paul is, is addressing the reformation of, of the household in Jesus Christ. And so it, it is fathers who have uh, responsibility for a certain initiative. This isn't to say that mothers aren't included, but it is to say that, that fathers do have a, a particular responsibility in this respect. So as we consider that this is directed to parents and fathers, we note that 
the responsibility to raise children in the instruction of the Lord is primarily the parent's responsibility. <coughs> teachers can be helpful, but teachers ordinarily do not uh, take the baptismal vows to raise their children in the instruction of the Lord. If the teacher happens to be a member of the same congregation, they may vow to assist the parent in assisting their, their child, but there is a responsibility that falls on the parent. This is a teaching that you see uh, throughout scriptures, that there is a responsibility that parents have to passing on the faith to their own children. That when children are celebrating the baptism in the Old Testament, they are to ask their parents, what, what, what does this mean? What is this about? What is the parent going to instruct us? In the Psalms, we read of how <coughs> one generation has been taught by the, the fathers of the previous generation, the statutes and the commandments of the Lord, and the mighty deeds that he has done. And so parents ought not to neglect or outsource entirely their responsibility to raise their children in the instruction of the Lord. And while, as we will see shortly, that this is much more than the choice of schooling, it's that is still a part of it and uh, is a significant part of your child's formation during the tender years. And I am not going to commit or promote any one particular form. Rather, I have questions regardless of what form of schooling you have chosen that will uh, that you can ask yourself whether or not you are fulfilling this obligation. your children in a public school? Are you aware of what your children are being taught? Are you persuaded that your children have reached a level of intellectual and spiritual maturity such that they can faithfully respond to classmates and teachers who, who promote and occasion metaphysical and ethical systems? Do your children have the emotional and spiritual maturity to remain faithful in a hostile environment? And are, they, are you regularly discussing with them they are learning in school and checking in with them to see how they're doing. If you have chosen to educate your children in a Christian school, has sending your children to such a school been a shortcut to fulfilling your own responsibilities as a Christian parent? Has your Christian school just become a way of outsourcing your God-given responsibilities to someone else? Is sending your child to a Christian college a last-ditch effort to inculcate the faith in their hearts after years of neglecting uh, cultivating a piety in the home. Or if you have chosen to homeschool, have you mistaken learning for godliness? Has learning the catechism become reduced to an exercise in mental dexterity and a display of, of intellect? Or have you ever thought, as long as my children score well on the, a on the ACT or SAT, I'll send my job forgetting that there's no portion of either of those exams entitled piety or godliness. Further, you might consider that there are things other than people that will instruct and teach our children. There are various things in the home, whether books or screens 
that will have a certain influence on our children. In some measure, bringing a king into the home is something like bringing a tutor into the home. But then the person has so much changed discipleship. Perhaps the most influential person in your child's life is not um, the parent, but the social media influencer. I'm not to say that you reject technology or that you cannot have a responsible and disciplined use of it. But it is to recognize that it does have a pedagogical effect on our children. And as parents, we need to wisely cultivate our children to the point that they can themselves responsibly use that technology. We recognize the who of this commandment, the parents. Secondly, we can also think about how this education is to be conducted. <coughs> the when and the where. In Deuteronomy 6, the Lord commands Israel, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. This is a way of describing um, an all-of-life discipleship of our children, whether you're at home or whether you're on the road, whether you are going to bed at night or whether you are waking up in the morning. From A to Z, from the end of the day, beginning of the day, at home, away from home, all of, of life is to be part of a Christian education. It's not just what happens in the classroom at school. And so consider that when you're driving on your way to church or to any other place, down 316, that this is part of your child's education. And you see that billboard that is posted on the hospital pole that says, Keep making signs. This is an opportunity for discipleship. Yes, are there amazing cancer hospitals in central Ohio that can extend your life? Yes. Can we give thanks to God for these things? Yes. But do you remember that sermon that Pastor John preached on New Year's Day about mixing light and light? And do you see how you should always commend your plans to the Lord and sweeten his own making plans that have not been committed to him. Or passing a cemetery. Have you taught your children that this is the end of all mankind? That they will die. And yet that there is a Savior who can raise them from the dead. That there is somebody who has come out of the tomb already and entered into incorruptible life, the Lord Jesus Christ so that they may live prepared for that day without fear. Or even how you talk about the weather. When it rains, do you see something to complain about, or do you see, as Jesus describes it, as just a token and an expression of God's kindness towards unbelievers, that even they might repent? Because even the, the unrighteous, a token of his, un, uh, of his kindness to them, that they might repent. Recalling Deuteronomy 6 also uh, keeps in mind that while it is 
everywhere and every when that we disciple our children, which is greatly helped by actual specific routines and habits that we engage in. Family worship, a time each day that is set apart together as a household for the reading of scriptures and praying and perhaps singing as well. things and your kids will turn out all right. We recognize that it is always the gift of God's grace, that he has appointed means, but that it is always according to his, his gracious working in the hearts of our children, and that we cannot force them to become what we desire them to become. And what as those sad cases where children do grow up, and they have been instructed in the fear and admonition of the Lord, they reject it, and they walk away. What recourse do parents turn to? We may yet again turn to our Heavenly Father. Though we as parents may have done everything we could and may have failed in many significant ways, there is yet a Father in Heaven who has set His name on those children. And we are able to plead his faithfulness on their behalf. But as we pray for our children in their growing up years, we may also find that we have to pray for them to our last breath. Pleading with our God that he would show mercy, that he would show himself a loving and compassionate father through his son, Jesus Christ, to those who have, perhaps for a season only, rejected and so while it is heavy and sad to consider when children stray from the faith, we may yet, because of Jesus Christ, look with hope and confidence to our God that he will yet have mercy because he is our Heavenly Father who cares for us. thank you that we may approach you through Jesus Christ, your Son, and that our chastisement has fallen on him, though he committed no sin, that we might be saved. And we ask for those children of this very congregation who have strayed and wandered, and we pray and plead that the sign of baptism which we have witnessed this morning, that you would bring them back. We pray in Jesus' name.